In this episode of The Project, I'm chatting with David Nathan about the forthcoming release, Aretha. the second installment of the ad hoc series, The Project, which aims to explore the process a new release undergoes before it is launched by the individual responsible for the project. In my first installment, you heard me chatting with the British ambassador, Sol David Nathan, for the Phyllis Hyman nine CD box set, Old Friend. Today, David is my guest once again as I explore with him the Aretha Franklin career-spanning box set, Aretha. It covers nearly six decades. In addition, I will explore some of the previously unreleased unheard recordings by the Queen of Soul throughout this interview. So join me in welcoming David Nathan. David, I remember when I interviewed you for The Music My Life, you mentioned you wrote to Aretha through her father's church as a result of a conversation with Nina Simone. What was behind that gesture? My first reference for Aretha Franklin was at um, the airport, the Heathrow Airport, in uh, June of 1965, when I was meeting Nina Simone as the founder of her then newly formed UK Appreciation Society. And she asked me directly if I'd heard of Aretha Franklin. And her reference was related to the fact that uh, a British singer, Dusty Springfield, had recorded an Aretha Franklin uh, a, a, a record had covered a, a, a recording that Aretha had done previously called "Won't Be Long," and, a, and Nina went into a little bit of a, a rant about it about people covering people's songs. He had had the same experience with "Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood" being covered by the Animals, and you know she was. It was basically like, why are all these British people taking our songs and mimicking us and and and, and recording them, and therefore we don't have the hits? Was her premise, which was quite common practice in the in, at the time period we're talking about, the mid sixties. So I said, no, I haven't heard. I haven't heard her. And then a few months later, I did hear Aretha on a on a beach at a record player in Littlehampton. Uh, when it was a Dionne Warwick Durrell's fan club outing and uh, she was the LP in question was called Running Out of Fools the track in particular was Walk On By which of course was at that time my favourite song of all time by Dionne Warwick Warwick so I was then just I, I was like determined to get every possible Aretha Franklin recording I could which was very difficult to do because she was recording for Columbia Records and only one of her albums had ever been released in Britain and the, all the other ones I had to get as imports. That's where all my pocket money went. And when I heard Aretha's voice and listened to those albums, I was so completely like taken over by her voice and the emotion and the passion that I thought, well, I want to write to her and tell her how much I, I, I love her music. And uh, so that's really what the motivation was for me writing a letter to her, care of her father's church. No address because I didn't know the address in Detroit. And another backup letter to her manager, who was also her husband, Ted White. And I don't know which letter, she, I don't know if she got both, but a few months later, she sent me a letter back saying thank you. And she didn't know she had any fans in England. And the truth is at that point, she didn't. Very few people had even heard her name. Do you start then writing and for Blues and Soul? What was the stage of her recording career then? And how many releases had already existed by the time you did your first feature on her? 
very first feature I did was not an interview, but was a, a like an appreciation of her. And that was in Blues and Soul, the first edition of Blues and Soul in 1967. Um, I think it was around, I'd have to look the exact date, but I think it was around September of 1967. Just to back up, uh, I actually had written another appreciation piece again about Aretha uh, for another magazine prior to that, but it wasn't a widely circulated magazine. It was called Rhythm and Soul USA. And that was really for the members of a particular uh, appreciation society called the Friends of Rhythm and Blues uh, Society, actually. The Blues and Soul article, September 1967, by then Aretha had recorded, uh, of course, six, I think six or seven albums for Columbia. And she had recorded one album, or one album had been released on Atlantic, which was uh, the famous uh, breakthrough album, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. So that had come out around the April, April, May of 1967. So when I wrote the appreciation piece for Blues and Soul, it was really talking about her career to date. By September of 1967, she had had her first British hit with Respect, which was uh, her cover of the Otis Redding song. And that would have been in the spring of, uh, of 1967. And in America, she had broken through completely. She had a, I Never Loved a Man, the title track was a, a Massive uh, hit pop and R&B, and then Respect was the first chart-topping uh, uh, follow-up, and that was also you know in the, in the few months of 1967. That was in the spring summer of 1967. By the time I wrote this appreciation feature, uh, Aretha was beginning to be known. Yes, absolutely. What sort of capacity venue was she performing at by this point in time? Uh, prior to her breakthrough, she had been performing primarily at uh, nightclubs and occasional festivals. Uh, I would I don't know for sure because she hadn't been to England at that point, but I imagine, I, I know she was performing probably before, you know, more in concert halls. Um, I think at the time, as I remember, 1967 specifically, she was still doing what they called um, Chitlin Circuit Tours. So she was on a tour with uh, people like Wilson Pickett and Jackie Wilson. I mean, they would do these package tours and Aretha would be on those tours. I think she started doing her own headline gigs uh, sometime during the latter part of 1967, and those probably would have been um, you know, more concert halls. But the, uh, those other uh, Chitlin Circuit uh, shows, so to speak, were at theaters. Theaters held about a few thousand people. I took my sister to meet Aretha at the airport, and uh, so Aretha arrived with her husband, manager Ted, her sister Carolyn, two background singers, and uh, I, my sister and I walked up to her and said, hello, hello, Miss Franklin, I'm David, Nathan, and I just want to welcome you to England. And she smiled and she was quite um, kind of, what would I say, uh, kind of taken aback, so to speak, by uh, having anyone meet her at the airport other than the record company person. When she performed at the Hammersmith Odeon, is when I uh, took uh, my mum and my sister to see her. And what was your mum's reaction to seeing this extraordinary lady perform? Well, my mother had been exposed to the sound of Aretha Franklin (laughs) a few years before that, uh, by virtue of me playing her albums and attempting to sing along. Uh, And of course, like many mothers of that time or parents, the frequent cry was, turn it down, turn it down. That was the first concert my mother ever went to. My mum, you know, 
was obviously enjoying it. And the intermission, I said, oh, so what do you think? Oh, my mom said, she reminds me of that gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson. I said, well, that's amazing you said that because actually Aretha, uh, Mahalia Jackson was kind of like Aretha's second mother in a sense and, wow. and, 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 and lived with her for a while, you know. And uh, so she was, I said, it's amazing that my mom made that connection. And then I took her back. Afterwards, we went to the stage door, back, you know, the, the, the door, the stage door, the stage door. There you go, the stage door. I introduced Aretha to my mom and my sister. And uh, she was very gracious. And he gave her some more flowers. Reading about Aretha having a child at 13. She had two two children. Two children. One at at 13 and one at 15, I think. But it didn't hamper her career because she went on to become one of the biggest um, artists of all time. There's a famous quote. She said, I'm 26 going on 65, meaning I've already lived a full life and I'm only 26 years old. In other words, yes, having two children as a teenager, I have to say back then, in the in the 50s was not usual it wasn't it was very unusual uh, because especially for a preacher's daughter it was very unusual I mean I don't know I don't know when I say very unusual I can just, I can only talk the fact that when it happened you know obviously there was an awareness I mean she didn't pretend she wasn't pregnant and she didn't she kept you know she had but she gave birth she adjusted obviously and um, and dealt with it but I'm sure it was hard I mean you know yeah, I'm sure it was very hard on her um, in one sense because how, how do you deal emotionally with, with with giving birth at that at that age? And I'm not in any way an expert about how, how teenage mothers deal with that. I don't know, but I do know that it didn't stop Aretha from continuing to pursue a career. And her first recordings as a secular artist were at age 18, uh, and, and as by then, by which time her children were still been very very young. I mean, I, I think that a lot of her ability to emote and bring deep emotion to her music was probably um, based in or, or, or fueled by the life she'd li- lived up to that point. What was her relationship like with her father? Um, there's no mention so far of her relationship with her mother, but her father being a, a man of the cloth seems to me to be quite influential. Oh, yeah, it was very much so, very much so. She, Aretha herself, says in her autobiography and her memoirs that she had a, a great relationship with her mom too. Mom left home, left the house when she was 10, maybe when she was six, I'm sorry, six. And then her mom passed away when she was 10. And her, fa- her father was a, a big influence on her in every way. He was the you know, patriarch. He was the, he was the, you know, this famous orator, preacher. And uh, Aretha did say that a lot of her, uh, even her vocal approach came from listening to her father's sermon. Um, you very kindly sent me a number of tracks um, that I could use uh, through this interview. Uh, and one of them is my kind of, sorry, my kind of town Detroit is. Can you expand on this particular recording for us? Well, that track, which was actually originally a Frank Sinatra song called Chicago is My Kind of Town. When Aretha signed to Atlantic Records in uh, November of 1966, Ted White and Aretha put together 
some demos of songs to present to Jerry Wexler, who is the person who had signed it to Atlantic. And just to give him an idea of what they were thinking about, some of the things she wanted to do. And the tape box sat in the Atlantic vaults for from 1966 to 2002 when I found the tape box. <laughs> and My Kind of Town is one of the tracks on there. It was not meant to be released. It was meant as an example of what she was up to. And it's Aretha with a little quartet, I think. It sounds like it was done in, it could have been done at home, in a home, or could have been done in a studio. So we call it a demo. It was a demo. as a soul artist or more as a gospel singer would you say I don't think she was she was just signed as a just as a, yeah really a, a, you know a, a, an R&B at that time we would call it soul R&B recording artist who also could do jazz um, but there was she was definitely not signed as a, as a gospel artist no Atlantic didn't at that time in 1966-67 they didn't really have a gospel roster so 1977 1970 1970 I'm sorry you've got the first um, Blues and Soul cover of her it's a great cover by the way was she yet touring the UK she's done Top of the Pops is a tour on the horizon she didn't tour but she did play the Royal Albert Hall and she performed again at Hammersmith I remember going to Hammersmith I don't remember if I went to Royal Albert Hall. When I worked at Aristo, I heard that she had a fear of flying. Do we know what was behind that? Because she'd obviously flown to the UK uh, a number of times. Uh, Aretha flew everywhere you know, from the earliest time of her life. I guess she began flying, which would have been in the 60s sometime, until 1983, when she had a really bad flight in a uh, four-seater, tiny little plane that got caught in some really bad weather, like 
thunderstorms. And it was, I think it was going from Atlanta to Detroit, as I remember. And the plane started flipping, flipping. I mean, it was like literally, it's a four-seater plane. It wasn't like a jet. And uh, it scared her so much that once she once she landed in Detroit, she said, "That's it. I'll never get on a plane again." And she didn't. I didn't realize. She, yeah, and she did. Her. She did do. She took lessons at different times to overcome her fear, uh, but she never conquered it. And she and I later in life had many conversations about uh, about it. And she really was dedicated to doing it. But every time she would take the lessons or you know the, the simulate a flight, she would come. It didn't. You know, she got scared again. And she she whatever whatever trauma it it brought back she just never did and and there were a lot of countries where she never performed unfortunately you know they never got to see her and her last performances in Britain by the way just as as a matter of record amongst them were her performance uh, for uh, at, at the Royal Command performance in 1980 that one of the tracks on the box set is actually uh, the audio of her performance at, her, her performing at the Royal Command performance I know on disc three is the track Angel well, I was very, very fortunate uh, by 2002 to be hired uh, to do vault research, tape research by Rhino Records. I lived in Los Angeles at the time, and the, the a lot of the original master tapes had been moved to Burbank from New York. And my job was to literally walk up and down the aisles of the tape library uh, and, and make notes of tapes with Aretha's name on them, which is how I found the demo tape, by the way, that I mentioned earlier. I found the boxes that were part of the session she did with Quincy Jones for an album called Hey Now Hey, came out in 1972. So uh, Angel uh, was actually part of the sessions that uh, Aretha did with um, Quincy Jones. as a Yeah. Leader. And um, they did them in April of 1972. And this was shortly after she had recorded Amazing Grace album in Los Angeles. Uh, I I, I'm imagining she went back to um, Detroit uh, after the after the sessions. She began working with Quincy Jones in April of 1972, and Angel was amongst the first um, recordings in their sessions. Um, the album itself came out in um, 1973, like a year later, several years later. And Angel, the actual. Um, single uh, was released, I think, earlier in 1973. And uh, but what I found in the in, in the tape vault were all these different um, takes of the song, like where they had begun working on it. Um, Aretha's kind of going through how she wants to do the song, talking to the musicians, um, trying different things, and uh, you know. I fortunately Rhino were kind enough to um, trans have all that all those different takes transferred to digital files so we can listen to them. Nobody knows where to turn, so I have to do the speaking part, right? Yeah. 
Now get ready to turn.
Yeah. By 1973, I was uh, I was lodged in the famous uh, 42 Hanway Street Contempo offices, and I was writing for Blues and Soul on a much more regular basis. I was working at Contempo, which was like a the umbrella company, so to speak, which had a mail order department, had a um, little shop at the front of the of the office, and uh, was involved in bringing people artists over from America for performances. So I was, and I had a record label. So I was a man with all these different hats at Contempo, and the opportunity to talk to Aretha was rare. She didn't do a lot of interviews. She was basically a private kind of person. Uh-huh. Uh, and she would be min- kind of minimal in her responses. Um, and But not uh, with you. Well, of course not with me because <laughs> she met me in 1968. I wrote letters to her in 1966. Now, at that time, I wasn't a journalist, but there was a level of trust and comfort uh, that superseded her concerns. And I never... I never, you know, um, you know, crossed the boundaries by asking her deeply personal questions because that's not what that's not what I did anyway. To set it up for you, I was st- <laughs> because of the time difference. I had to do the phone call from home, and um, <laughs> I'm just remembering it. Aretha was performing at the Apollo, and the way he set it up was they said, "Well, call at a specific time." I had to generate the call through the operator. She was. Ex- she was ready for the call. Actually, she wasn't the first time. They said, well, please call back. She's not quite ready. And she was backstage at the Apollo and, you know, perform- doing a, 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 some shows at the Apollo. And, uh, and she came on the line. I said, hi, how are you? There's pleasantries over. And we did our interview about, uh, you know, about the album, Hey Now, Hey, and just talking about, you know, what she was up to. And it was a really, it was a really pleasant interview. Well, very strange to be talking to her on a, basically, a, I think it wasn't a payphone, but, Okay, on to track three until you come back to me. Very popular one. That's one of my personal favorite songs. I love that song. I've always loved the song. I think this is brilliant. And again, during the course of my tape research, I found only one take, only one different take of it from the one that came out. And um, we call it work tape, again, because Aretha's just um, working out how, how, how the song's going to go. And I don't know, I can't remember if, if we were able to put a piece of Jerry Wexler speaking on there. I think we did, where he s- says... Um, it's got a kind of reggae feel. She's asking how to do it, how, how, what the kind of feel of it is. Um, and that was, uh, I guess, conceived by, um, well, it's probably the result of the original recorded, re- original demo from Stevie Wonder. It's actually a little bit of a mis- misrepresentation to say it was a demo. I mean, uh, Stevie's version of the song didn't come out for a very long time, but I believe that um, he'd already recorded it with the intention of it being released, but it was never released at, at the time it was written, a co-written, and um, and 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 just you just hear Aretha kind of working it out. I think that's what sets it up.
to America in uh, 1975. However, I did go on holiday in October of 1974, and one of the absolute highlights of my trip was seeing Aretha Radio City Music Hall, which is a massive venue in New York City. It's and, a uh, fantastic venue. It yeah, really and, is. And it was a brilliant, brilliant... Uh, I was so excited that it had to coincide with my being there because I was only there for like 10 days on holiday I went with my friend Gary who was had been my flatmate in London and moved to New York and we um, it was brilliant it was totally brilliant I didn't go backstage because at that point I didn't have that kind of access because also I was on holiday so I wasn't like uh, going there to officially cover it I imagine Um, it was packed out as well it was it was was a couple of nights I think I think a couple of nights at Radio City Music Hall was she happy in herself yeah I, I, I didn't get to speak to her that on that particular occasion not on that okay. occasion, but from your observations now. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that she was having a great time. She uh, had moved. She was living in New York at that point uh, with Ken Cunningham. Uh, so they, she had a brownstone on the east side of uh, on New York's Upper East Side. She would cycle through Central Park. Apparently, she was. Uh, she had lost a lot of weight. She was looking. I think the best she ever looked in terms of her physical appearance, and she seemed very happy. And and what I remember. Deanne, which is so funny because I got to remind Aretha about this directly, is that when she appeared at Radio City Music Hall, because of the way that uh, particular venue is designed, she literally came up through the floor of the stage in a clown's outfit. You're kidding. Nope. (laughs) I kid you not. For what purpose? With a top top hat to sing the song, There's No Business I Show Business. (laughs) 
and to, and I guess to shock the audience. Did it work? Yeah, it was like, oh, yeah. And then she took the clown's outfit. She just like opened it up. She was wearing an appropriate evening gown for the night. Yeah, but it was amazing. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to live sing a weekday in New York. And she's like, and then in 2014, so that was literally 40 years later, in October 2014, which was exactly 40 years after I saw her in New York, I said, you know, I, I said, I was backstage after she performed at Radio City Music Hall in 2014, and I was chatting with her, and I said, you know, you know, when, when I was talking to her directly and there were other people around, I would say, Aretha, I didn't call her Miss Franklin at that point, uh, at least not privately. I said, Aretha, I, I Oh, this is amazing, but you know what? I was here, you were here 40 years ago, and so was I. I it was my first time being in New York, and I was on holiday. I said, do you, do you remember the show? She said, oh, not really. She said, remind me. I said, well, you came up uh, through the through the floor wearing the, a, a clown's outfit. <gasps> yes, she said. Yeah, that's right. I remember that now. She said, she said I, I said, you did There's No Business Like Show Business. She said, yeah, right. Oh, and she loved the memory. Let's get on to track four, Mr. DJ, five for the DJ. Strange title. Yes. By this time, Aretha had moved to Los Angeles and was living in Encino and uh, was neighbors, so to speak, with the Jacksons. She began recording in Los Angeles for the first time, I think, uh, where she was much more involved in her own production and much more credited with that, so to speak. And there's different schools of thought about that because she wasn't as being supervised as much, one could say. Jerry West is credited as a co as a producer, but Aretha is very much Aretha's session. And even Jerry Wexler at that point said that he felt like their creative relationship had reached its peak. And uh, so that was one of the last uh, recordings he did with her as where he's credited as a producer. Mr. DJ, uh, Five for the DJ is very much a kind of like a, a like a homage to the to the various uh, DJs throughout the country. That was kind of a, it was a quite interesting uh, kind of uh, way to make sure she got airplay. <laughs> I don't think that was her motivation. I think it's, just a, it's kind of up, upbeat, kind of peppy, peppy little song. You know? It is, yes. The Pepin Step kind of song. It didn't, it didn't do as well, unfortunately, as um, some of her previous recordings. And it was part of a period of time in which Aretha, the beginning of a period of time where Aretha was much more in charge of, uh, of her recording process.
other than um, um, an album she did during that time period, actually in 1976 with Curtis Mayfield, which was the soundtrack for uh, Sparkle, the film Sparkle. Most of the recordings she made from 1975 to 1979 did not do as well as uh, her previous work had done. It wasn't a massive hit. I think there are other, other songs from that time period that were, were, were really good. I mean, of course, there were some things that were never released. In 1978, uh, in the wake of her success with um, Sparkle, Curtis Mayfield collaboration, she um, had done one more album with Curtis called uh, uh, Almighty Fire, Woman of the Future. And I was living in New York at the time, and Atlantic uh, Records, because she's still signed to Atlantic, uh, wanted me to do a full interview with her for Blues and Soul. So I did literally, like, it was a full-on sitting in her living room with her then-new husband, Glenn Turman, and, you know, talking about, you know, how everything was going and how she felt about living in California. And just, it was a great conversation. And I mentioned to her that um, she had, uh, I'd seen her perform uh, a song called You Light Up My Life in concert. And You Light Up My Life was originally done by Debbie Boone, the daughter of Pat Boone. And it was kind of, it was a big pop hit. Aretha was known for reinterpretation. So she would a lot of times take songs that people were like, oh, why is she doing that? And just turn them into these kind of amazing pieces of work. And um, so I mentioned to her about the about You Light Up My Life. And I said, well, I know you get standing ovations for it. And she said, yes, people really seem to love it. And, and at the time I did the interview with her, she said, well, we just finished recording it. And I did a recording of it with my then musical conductor, who also later in life became a constant musical director on the road, H.B. Barnum, who was a very well-known arranger, conductor. Uh, and he had co-produced You Light Up My Life with Aretha right there in Los Angeles. In fact, in the conversation, she said, well, I did, we just finished, you know, we just finished it. And now we've turned it into Atlantic. You know, we think it's going to be the next single. And she, in fact, had even started doing uh, like, you know, shows on TV mentioning this is going to be my next single. Well, somewhere between there and and, and 2021, <laughs> it didn't get released. I don't know why. I don't know what conversations were happening between Aretha and Atlantic. But for whatever reason, it wasn't released. Wonderful story. I want to take you back to Encino, though, because you made an interview conditional. Tell me more about that. So it's 1980. I was living in New York and I get a call. Uh, actually, it, the call went to my answering, answering service. Back then, uh, there was no voice, there's no voicemail. I mean, there was no voicemail. There was no answering machines. I think there might have been an answering machine. I can't remember. But anyway, what I remember is I had an answering service and I called the answering service when I was out one day and they said, Oh, you got a call from Aretha Franklin. And the answering service said, some person said to me, Is that the real Aretha Franklin? I said, Well, I don't there any others. Yes. It's she said, well, let me give you the number. And uh, she asked if you could call her back. So I called her back. And she said, um, hi, David. And the way Aretha spoke, hi, David. And I said, hi, Aretha. I returned your call. So, you know, I just signed to Arista. I really love you to hear the first album before it comes out. I said, really? Yeah, if you could do something maybe for blues and soul. I said, sure, absolutely. 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 So I said, however, I have a condition. And I rem she said, and what is that? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I know about you and your cooking. We've heard about it. I've read about it. You talked about it. So I 
as a condition for me flying out to LA, I would like some peach cobbler. <laughs> and Aretha laughed. She said, okay. I said, and I don't forget. And then we confirmed the flight details of about a week or so later. And I flew out and uh, I was staying at the home of uh, a member of the Crusaders, Six Hooper group. And he didn't live too far from where he lived in the valley, so to speak. And Aretha was in Encino, so also in the valley, so to speak. And so I called Arcona to make sure that timing was correct. I said, now, you haven't forgotten what I asked, have you? About the peach cobbler. I didn't even say about the cob- peach cobbler. She said, yeah, the peach cobbler's here. I went out to the house, and before I did the interview, I sampled the peach cobbler, listened to the album, did the interview, and, and left with a, what Americans call a doggy bag. <laughs> so give us the verdict not, on the peach which cobbler. Which not for the dog, but for me. <laughs> no, no, the no. Peach no. Give us the verdict on the peach cobbler. Well, I mean, what can I say? I mean, it's Aretha's peach cobbler. I mean, it was, a, it was a totally fantastic. She had some too, yeah. by the way. It wasn't like she, she and Glenn, husband, had some. You know, it wasn't like, oh, this is just for you, Dave. You could, it's not like you could take it all away by yourself. So, yeah. But again, that demonstrates I, yeah. how close the professional relationship was. That she didn't mind. She was not offended by the request no. and she honored it. Let's get on to the fifth track that you've recommended. Ooh, Baby Baby with Smokey mm. Robinson. More yes. smoky track than an Aretha track still for me. That, of course, comes from a taping of um, Soul Train, which was in 1979. And um, it was, it was a, the show was built around Aretha. And um, I, I'm sure she knew that Smokey Robinson was going to be there. It wasn't like a shop. Um, but anyway, um, at some point during the show, uh, Don Cornelius, the host, says, oh, we have someone special here, something like that, and uh, Smokey Robinson. And uh, so, uh, you know, Smokey comes and sits at the piano with Aretha while she sings, ooh, baby, baby. He, they say, so I, there's a little bit of banter, and I think, so let's, let's do something. Let's try something. Let's do something, you know. I tell you, listening to that, it's just like magic. I mean, they sound so great together and that song is beautiful i mean that's one of the most beautiful smoky robinson songs of all time I agree. and it just you know and there was just magic i mean if you if you get a chance if anyone gets a chance to check it out there is a youtube video of it of the two of them doing this particular performance from 1979 on soul train and you can see the way they look at each other i mean they were they were they grew up in detroit i mean they they knew each other from way back you know and and, and, and even going back to the song that we talked about um, earlier on, uh, Detroit is my kind of town. She mentions in like when, when Aretha's kind of just like a riffing and she talks about the four tops and the miracles uh, and she even mentions Smokey when she's doing this 1966 demo, uh, you know, uh, for, for intended for possible use at Atlantic. She even references Smokey. So uh, clearly there was a there was a great uh, kind of chemistry between them you can see and uh, you know, I mean, could be, I, th- I think she kind of communicated that she still had a little, I say crush on him, but maybe that would be too strong. But she, she certainly, uh, I'm smiling because if you see the actual video, you can see the way she looks at him and the way he, not so much the way he looks at her. I mean, looks at her fine, but, but she, you can see she's being so, somewhat playful with him. Ooh, la, 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 la. 
shouldn't have been a do wrong. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's not too late. I did you wrong. Yeah. My heart went out to play. But in the game, I lost you. and her music looking back actually mean to you? It was a kind of, there was a certain something bluesy, kind of emotional, sometimes sadness, sometimes pain that I heard, I heard, uh, that I resonated with from experiences I had had growing up. When I first started um, dating and being in relationships, uh, which would have been around the age of 19, uh, is that at the same time that Aretha's I Never Loved the Man album came out. And, and, and the, so the songs that she was recording actually paralleled my, my real life experience. And I think a lot of the songs were also drawn from her own experience. And while we didn't discuss that at the time, I just innately felt connected with her and, and, and felt that um, because I then had had an opportunity to actually talk to her. So I just, uh, what, what, what her music means to me is she's like the through line through my entire life from 1966 to now. She's like the one consistent, constant musical presence. And of the, of the people that I began to meet in uh, 1967, 68, around that time, the beginning of my career, so to speak, she was the, uh, she is the only one that I think I developed a certain kind of personal relationship with. I had a personal relationship with Nina, Simone, to whatever degree I did, because we didn't live in the same country and the same continents. And with Dion, definitely a lot of friendship um, and, and, you know, a warmth. With Aretha, we could just be like playful with each other. I mean, I'm not going to disclose the conversation we had later in life for her and me, but she... she 
<laughs> some of them were a little bit like the kind of conversation you have with a uh, you know people have with their best girlfriend or best boyfriend. Sure. You know, like like kind of you know this is just you know and and they were funny and uh, she told jokes. I mean, I didn't have that with anyone else really. And so what her music represents to me. As I say, it's the through line through my life and my career, and um, is a is an un, inexplicable, inexplicable um, bond. It's explicable to me personally, but not from the outside. No one would be able to explain logically how this relationship began, developed, and continued across continents and through decades. To literally the last time I spoke to her was in 2016. She represents, uh, that's what she represents as a person and a presence. And what her music means to me, in one sense, is the story of my life. Hello. Oh. 